0: Stories told of the day a passenger in a taxi leaned over to ask the driver a question and in the process tapped him on the shoulder. The driver screamed, lost control, the cab nearly hit a bus, drove up over the curb and stopped just inches from a large plated glass window at a restaurant. For a few moments you can imagine everything was silent in the cab and then the still shaking driver said, I'm sorry but you scared the daylights out of me. The frightened passenger apologized to the driver and said he didn't think that a mere tapping on the shoulder could frighten him so much, and the driver replied, no, no, it's not your fault, it's entirely my fault. See, today's the first day that I've I've ever driven a cab. I've been driving a hearse for the last 25 years. (laughs) And I like that. The story is, you know, is a reminder that old habits are hard to break. You know, today in our ongoing study through the Gospel of Luke, we come to a passage that focuses our attention on things that really matter. Unfortunately, as all of us know, it's easy to get caught up in uh, wasting time over things that really don't make much difference at all. I mean, they, they have no eternal significance whatsoever, and they seem to dominate much of our life and much of our time. And uh, in this particular section, we've learned to date uh, many vital truths relating to, to God and His love for people and His loving warning to those who would not repent, those who would not turn from sin and turn to God. There was judgment waiting them and waiting us who would do not, not do the same thing. And Jesus taught a lot of new truth. And that truth, you know, flew in the face of those old habits that people were struggling and wrestling with. And uh, and as he was on his way to Jerusalem, uh, he continued to teach his disciples, preparing them for the day uh, he would no longer be with them, and they would minister to others in his place. And if you've got your Bibles, we'll pick up where we left off after our last message, but we'll pick up in Luke chapter 17, where Jesus uh, teaches his disciples, us in the process, some of the essentials of the Christian life, things that really matter. You know if you ever struggle with and try to you know figure out you know what's really important in life, what really matters, um, you know and you try to separate those things that don 't from those things that do, here's a couple of things in this passage that really do matter in Luke chapter seventeen, starting with verse one, we read these words, and he, speaking of Jesus, said to his disciples, "It is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck." and he were thrown into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. You know, in this short section of Scripture, it highlights two aspects of discipleship. And we're going to take a look at these, and they serve as our outline. In the first four verses, we're going to see the command of Jesus to forgive. And then the second thing is in verses 5 through 10, we see the cry for increased faith. And that will form the basic outline that we'll look at. You know, faith understands forgiveness and leads to a sense of duty or responsibility or service. And that's the flow of this particular section. Christianity, contrary to a popular thought, is not a private matter. You know many I know from from uh, the older generation older than me people that are older much, you know in years than I am uh, will, will you know argue that you know faith is a private matter and I don't know where that came from or how that was ever introduced into any generation but the bottom line is that you know faith is not a private matter uh faith is a very public matter and it's a very uh family matter when it comes to God's people as we relate to God and one another. It's not a private matter. I mean there are people that watch us every day and, and we will be the the, the the light that either shines clearly on who Jesus is or we will be a stumbling block or a hindrance to people seeing God for who he really is. And so it's a very public matter. And that's what Jesus is pointing out through this section. You know, in America, we often hear talk of our so-called rights as individuals. You know, I've got my rights, man. You know, I'm entitled to my opinion. But you know what? Your opinion, you may be entitled to an opinion, but it doesn't mean your opinion is right. I mean, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. There are absolute truths. And just because a person has an opinion, it doesn't mean anything. You know, it just means that you want to share something, you know. And a lot of times we share things without even thinking it through. We share things without even checking into. We share things without getting any counsel or research or doing our homework. We just share things from the gut because it's just there and we want to share it. But so what? I mean, you know, it doesn't mean anything. And so as we look at this, you know, and, and you know, we, we wrestle with all these things. I can do what I want to do. It's a free country, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's not the biblical picture of how we're to relate to one another, You know, our text, you know, makes it clear that no Christian is an island unto himself or herself. We have responsibilities to each other. And the first is seen in this command that I noted to forgive. In verses 1 through 4, the first thing I want to point out to your attention is is the reason that we are to forgive one another. And the reason is found in verse 1. Jesus said, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. He said, it's inevitable because we live in a fallen world we live in a world that is in rebellion against God we are you know we are the the products of the sin of Adam Uh, because of Adam's sin all of us are conceived in iniquity we all come into the world in rebellion against God and 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 that's probably the easiest thing in the world to point out and it's so funny to me that it's that's such a difficult thing for people to see Our whole system of government, not only here but around the world, is because of sin nature. It is to keep restraint. It is to restrain the evil within the heart of man that would do whatever we want to do when we want to do it at the expense of other people if there were no restraints around us. And and, and it's it's the easiest sell when it comes to, well, you know what? Can't you see what God says is true, that none of us are righteous, not one of us. All of us have sinned and fall short of his glory. All of us have turned from God. Each one of us have gone astray. I mean, you know, the Bible is so clear about that. And Jesus again says, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks would come. Well, why is it inevitable? Because we live in a fallen world. None of us are Perfect. And as we see through this passage we got to be careful that we aren't a stumbling block to others because the sin nature within us if we're not careful we can cause others to stumble in their pursuit of truth and of God. And so as we look through this we see that you know the work that the, the Greek word that's used scandalon is, is a word that we get our English word scandal. It says it's inevitable that a stumbling that, that stumbling blocks or scandals will arise. Why? Because none of us are perfect. Every one of us struggle with doing things that are right before God, choosing things that may be wrong before God, and as a result, we go through that. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, Paul elaborates on this whole idea of the inevitability of causing others to stumble, and he gives us some guidelines as to how to deal with it. You know, we've got to be careful not to cause another person to stumble or to be tripped up in their pursuit of God and doing what is right before God. And in Romans chapter 14, starting with verse 13, Paul explained this in a little more detail. When we read these words, it says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but determine this, not to be an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. There's our word again. Don't create a scandal by causing somebody to be confused about what it means to live a life that's right before God. It says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him is unclean. James will later write, "To him that knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him that is sin." As we just found out this morning, you have a couple that are called to to Siberia, and if they know that's where God is leading them, and they don't go, to them that is sin. To me, you know what? You know, Siberia. Hey, God bless you. You know. And I just, you know, in this is the way, God balances the universe. I stay in sunny Southern California with cancer, but nonetheless, I'm not in Siberia freezing. And, uh, and, and, and yet at the same time, to him that knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And see, and that's how God leads us individually that's different than maybe how God's leading you or God's leading me or God's leading the person next to you. And that's why we've got to be very careful about not condemning or judging other people for not doing what we think they should be doing for God because that is between them and God to use the gifts that God has given them in a way that is right in service to him and to his people. So that's where grace comes in. That's where uh, tolerance comes in. That's where acceptance comes in. And that's where we realize that, hey, you know what? But find what it is that God has gifted you and called you to do and do it. And we'll do everything we can to support one another in the process. In this particular case, we're talking about food, talking about diet. And it says, uh, anyone thinks something to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what, what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So that we understand the big controversy was there was was meat in that particular day that was offered to idols. And the controversy among Christians was, should we eat that meat because it was used for an ungodly or unholy purpose? Now, some people looked at it and said, you know what? There's nothing good or bad about meat in and of itself. Now, I know the vegetarians in the crowd would yell otherwise, but I've always had the same argument, and I can't eat red, red meat anymore, but I've always argued, and I said the same thing. If God didn't, you know, if God didn't want us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made him a meat. So, you know, you, you can't, how can you argue with such wisdom and logic, right? But, but the reality of it is, is that they, they, they were struggling with the, 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 what meat was used for, and it was used as a sacrifice to false gods. So some in the crowd would say, you know what, I'm not eating that meat. And others would say, hey, you know what? I'm eating it because we can get it at a good price because they can't use it for anything. Once it's sacrificed, it goes to waste. They're selling it at a wholesale bargain price, and it's like, hey, man, you know what? I don't have a problem with it. Well, what what became a problem was that people would impose upon one another what they thought was right or what they thought was wrong, that the Bible isn't clear on one way or the other, and there's grace or liberty or there's latitude here. And so his argument is simply this, you know what, if eating that meat in front of somebody else is going to cause them to stumble or it's going to cause there to be a friction in your relationship, then you know what, then lay that aside and do what's best in the best interest of your brother because the Bible clearly says, you know what, let, let us consider others more important than ourselves, Uh, Philippians chapter 2, have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. The whole attitude of humility, of saying, you know what? If this causes you to stumble, I'm not going to eat it in your presence because it's not worth our relationship being jeopardized. Now, what we do in the privacy of our home is between us and the Lord, and you know what? And we can live with that. And so he was just saying, extend yourself and put yourself in the position of the person that's offended. You know, we have to be careful about that. You know, it's funny, you know, now that I'm on this really restricted diet, you know, I go out to eat with people and they apologize for everything that they order. Oh, I'm sorry, is this double greasy cheeseburger offend you? Nah, man, eat it. And I'll just kind of eat it with you, you know. I'll just kind of like, uh, I'll just enjoy life through you. And yeah, I'll have that, you know, salad with balsamic vinegar and oil. Okay, that's fine. That's great. That looks good. That looks nice. Ah, oh, you know. But the, you know, and you have to get the point of like, hey, that's the way that it is. And you know, and I, I'd rather enjoy one another's company in that setting than say, you know what, we're not going to go out to eat with him anymore because he's not fun to be around. I mean, because isn't that, isn't that the way it works? Those are the options. It's like, man, you know, I forget about going out to eat with them. Although now we have other friends that we never enjoyed eating with and now we could probably go out and eat with because they eat like we eat now. And so, you know, you know God has a way of balancing things out for us. But the point in, in the passage is simply this. You know, don't allow these types of things to be a stumbling block. He goes on and says, So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives an offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. There's our word of which your brother, is. A, it creates a scandal. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because it, his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. So he's saying, well, you know what, when in doubt, don't. I mean, when in doubt, don't. You know, if you're not clear about something and you have a doubt about it, what it is that you're doing, then don't do it. But you've got to make sure from the word of God you have clarity as to whether something is right or something is wrong. The point of this, going back to Luke, is we have a responsibility to live in such a manner uh, that others don't become confused as to what it means to be a believer. You know, the word scandal has two meanings. The first is that it was used to describe luring an animal into a trap with a, with a piece of bait to lure somebody to do something by baiting them into doing it. And if you stop and think about it, how many of the things that we got involved in in life that are sin before God, as we look at that, were things that were introduced to us by another person? You know, I think back on my own life. You know, the first drink that I ever took, alcoholic drink was given to me by somebody else. Here, try this. The first time I ever smoked dope was, here, try this. There were things that were going on in our culture at that time. Here, try this. And it was something that was given to me by somebody else. And how many times we lure other people into wrong behavior by telling them, it's okay to do this because I do this. It's okay. And not only most of the time, it's we want you to do this because what I'm doing is I know it's wrong. But the more people I can get to do it, it gives me a false sense that what I'm doing is okay. And so, the more people we can engage in this activity, you know, the less our conscience bothers her about what it is that we're doing, you know, and so it's the whole idea of deliberately luring somebody into doing something that is wrong. You know, the second idea behind this word is it refers to putting something in another's path to cause one to trip or to stumble. It's kind of like throw it out before them so that, you know, it causes them to have to, and, and a lot of times it's deliberate. It's kind of like the person who, you know, wants to invite you because they know you're a Christian and they think that maybe you're going to church on Sunday, so it's like, hey, you know what, why don't you come and play golf with us Sunday morning and it's our treat. Well, wait a minute, now we're struggling with, uh, do I go and do I honor God and give him the time that he deserves out, out of my day and out of my life, or do I justify and rationalize that, oh, I've been offered something over here that appeals to me, kind of like the bait and the trap, and it's like, I'm going to go do that. You know, and some, some people go, oh, now, now you're being legalistic. Now you're, you no, know, you know what, though? But, but how, how do these things manifest themselves on a daily basis? Is it not in the simplicity of those types of decisions where our real heart and our, our real treasure is tested? And so we start to struggle and wrestle with, oh, you know, well, I got a meeting. Uh, oh, that's our Bible study night. Oh, but this came up. Oh, I got tickets to the angel game. Oh, but this meet, Oh, eh, ooh. you know, we're always struggling with what are we going to do? Who comes first in our life? You know, and the reality of it is, you know, you can't love God and yourself. Just like you can't love God and money, you can't love God and yourself. You're going to have to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then, you know what, if you do, then sacrifice from, from your own perspective is no big deal. It's like, oh, you know what? It's it's not a question. It's not an issue. This is my priority. And you know what? I can go golfing another time. I can go to a baseball game another time. I can do those things other times. There are other times or other places to do those things. And it's not God saying you can't enjoy any of these things. He's just saying, what's your priority? See, this whole stumbling block. You know, and oftentimes we lead people without really even knowing that they're following us. One of the greatest ad campaigns I ever saw was when I was younger. And it was when the advertising first came out. Uh, in this particular ad, some of you may recall this. It was a guy who was walking. It was kind of like the, the Andy Griffith Opie thing where they're walking down the street and there's a, there's, a, there's a dad and there's his son. And they're walking down the street and the dad picks up a rock and he throws it and skips it across the water. You see the little boy picks up a rock, skips it across the water. The dad's walking down a thing and there's this tree and he jumps up and he hits the leaf and you see the little boy trying to jump up. He doesn't come close, but he does the same thing. And anyway, everything the dad does, the little boy mimics. And at the end of this walk, they sit down and the dad leans up against a tree and he grabs a, a, a pack of cigarettes out of his pocket. He lights one up, he sits the pack of cigarettes down, and the very last shot is a little boy reaching over to grab a pack of cigarettes. You know, and it was, a, it was, a, it was an effective campaign as it had to do with, you know, don't smoke because look at, you know, look what's going to happen. And, you know, and I've always said more things are caught than taught. More things are caught than taught. How we live our life is, is, is more important than the words that we say, although we need to have both going in harmony and consistency, but how we live is what's being caught by the people around us. You know, if your relationship with God is a burden and God cramps your style, then the question is, who needs God? If you have to go to church, then who needs a, 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 that type of religious system where you have to do something? Now, if you want to go and you demonstrate you enjoy going, you can't wait to go, you want to praise God, you want to serve Him, you want to be involved in the things that you're involved in, then people stop and they listen to that and go, wow, these people want to do this, they don't do it because they have to do it. Because the world's religious systems are always, you've got to do all these things to stay in good standing in our club. But God says, you know what? You turn from sin and you trust in Christ and you're born again by the will of God and the Spirit of God lives within you. You're going to want to praise God with your lips. You're going to want to serve Him with the gifts He's given you. You're going to want to be involved in Bible study. We're going to learn and you're going to grow and you're going to understand more of God and yourself and what it is that He expects of us and how to live our lives. You're going to want to do all these things. And when you want to do these things, people around you say, wow, they want to do this stuff. They don't have to do this stuff. They do it because they want to. And you know what? Now I'm interested. When people do things because they want to do it, I'm interested in what it is that motivates them to want to do those things. See, in in general, we see the destructiveness of sin, you know, all through our culture. If you stop and look around, you know, you think about self-proclaimed experts. They try to convince us that God doesn't exist by promoting a theory, evolution, as a fact and withholding key evidence that refutes their own belief system. And they lure people away from God to the lie. We see people in our culture who encourage people to murder their unborn children because they want to encourage people to believe the lie. And it all goes hand in hand. If God doesn't exist and there's no accountability to God and God didn't create us in his image and likeness, then that thing, whatever it is that's growing within you, is not a human being. It's not created in God's image. It's not a person. It's just a thing. And so that's how it all starts. And then they lure people into, you know what, you can't afford this right now. This isn't a good time in your life. You're young, whatever. You know, and they think they're doing well, but they're not. They're, they're misleading and deceiving people because they've been deceived themselves. Some do it deliberately because they're making a buck out of it. Others do because they really think they're helping somebody, but they're misguided. And we see it all the time. You know, in general, we see all these things. The entertainment industry lures multitudes of people by preaching a message that's just an absolute uh, denial of God and our accountability to God. You know, do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. Be responsible. If you're going to drink, be responsible. If you're going to have sex outside of marriage, be responsible. Make sure you do it this way, as if somehow there's some magic pill that we can take to eliminate the consequences of sexual immorality. And that's the culture that we live in. And probably the worst of all are pastors and teachers (coughs) who preach, you know, political correctness at the expense of truth. They're more concerned about being popular, more concerned about filling seats, more concerned about vision funds and building programs and, and getting people on the campus than they are in delivering God's message because it's only God's message of truth that sets people free from the bondage of sin. You know, we see this all around us. The warning addresses teaching and subsequent behavior that leads to a loss of faith and a a life of sin. So if you go back to Luke chapter 17, the reason we're commanded to forgive is because it's inevitable that people are going to be stumbling blocks. The result of that is, he says, but woe to him through whom it comes. Everyone's accountable for their actions. This passage is very clear that those who lure other people into wrong behavior have a greater culpability because they're trying, to get, they're trying to sign people up. Come and do this. We're doing this. You do this. We're going to encourage you to do it. And he says, woe to him through whom stumbling blocks come. And if you remember from Luke 11, he said, woe several times to the Pharisees and the scribes. You know, woe to you. You know, there's a price that you're going to pay for doing this. See, God's concern, and notice, he says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. He's saying, you know, it'd be better for this person to die a mafia-style death, somebody just hang some concrete around their neck and throw them in the ocean and drown, than it would be to cause other people to stumble. I mean, that's a pretty powerful statement. And when he says, when he talks about little ones, Jesus referred to little ones in Matthew as children, but he's also referring to little ones here as the publicans and sinners who came to Jesus, putting their faith in him, and now we're little or young in their faith. What he's saying is to us who are older, more mature believers is, you know what? Don't cause young believers to stumble in their faith by doing things that create some type of a doubt in their life as to what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Look at your behavior. I remember years ago when I first came to to know Christ as my Savior, we went out to dinner with friends who were, you know, they they were, quote, our mentor-type couple. And we were around the table and we were having dinner, and and all of a sudden, you know, they started, bottles of wine started coming to the table. And see, and drinking was so much a part of who I was as an unbeliever that it was was like it caught me off guard. It's like, wow, what's going on here? You know, because I... Uh, equated drinking with a sinful lifestyle. Now, no one at that table ever said to us, "Hey, you know what? Will this offend you?" I wouldn't have known if it would have or not. I would have probably asked the question. Well, I don't understand. Why do you, you know? Why do you drink? It kind of sends a, a funny message, but you know, I, I don't know. And so, <clears throat> when we start to look at these, these are very real things that we often to deal with. You know, Jesus warns. He says, "You know what? Be on your guard." Watch out that you don't cause others to stumble. I asked myself the question, what does your behavior say about your love for God, His Word, giving, serving, going to church, whatever? You know, what does your behavior say? Does your behavior help these young believers see God in His truth and what it is that God requires of us, what it is, is God demands of us, what it is that God expects of us? Or does your behavior hinder them from seeing God and his truth for what it really is? And, and that's something we have to look at. I found this, I came across this, this resource in, uh, in, in a place where I find plenty of my spiritual insight, much of my spiritual insight. I found it in the sports section <laughs> of the local newspaper. And, uh, and, and when I read this, I went, this, this is perfect. It says, from Mike Downey of the Chicago Tribune. He was publishing an entry from U.S. javelin thrower Bro Greer's Road to Olympics diary. This is what uh, Bro wrote. It says, my roommate from Algeria checked in at 1.30 a.m. and began praying while he was watching porn on television. I told him he had to pick one or the other. I like that got to pick one or the other man I mean what what are you thinking but there's somebody that is observing this going wait a minute what what are you doing a friend of mine who had come to faith in Christ his plays on a major league baseball team said that he was in Las Vegas for a golf tournament it was a celebrity tournament they had been invited to and there was another man who was on another team who was their chapel leader and just a, you know just a very outspoken believer And he said as he was walking through his hotel, he went walking through the casino, and as he walked through, he saw this guy that he looked up to, you know, as kind of his mentor, this role model in his faith. He saw him at a blackjack table, you know, gambling with a drink in front of him. And he said he just walked through there and said there was something within my spirit that just said, this just doesn't make sense to me. You know, I'm new at this Christianity stuff, but there's something in my heart that says there's something wrong about what I just saw. See, the, the point is, some would say, oh, you know, our, we'd argue grace versus legalism and all these kind of things, but, but I simply argue from Romans 14 and from this passage that we need to express love to others so that we consider first their spiritual growth before our own personal preferences of things that could be considered questionable behavior. To consider others more important, what message am I sending to other baseball players who look up to me as a, you know, a role model in my Christian faith? Being here gambling and drinking. See, we gotta watch our behavior, we gotta be on guard. It's used 24 times in the New Testament and the question comes back to, is my behavior appropriate as one of God's children? These are things people don't like to talk about but they're things that need to be addressed. Because if you stop and think about how much of this type of behavior causes dissension, disharmony, disunity in the body of Christ. Went out to dinner with another couple. They invited us to dinner and said to us, will this offend you if we ordered wine? And my answer to them was absolutely not. Because I know that that in and of itself isn't right or wrong before God. It's between you and God. And would you offend us by drinking in front of us? Absolutely not. But we're at a point in our life where we understand the difference. I've got, I think, a, a better grasp of Scripture now than I did 25 years ago. And so it wasn't offensive to us. But if it would have been offensive to us, would we have been honest to say, you know what, yeah, I'd rather we not. We have to be able to communicate that, speak the truth in love to one another. Another person said I went to a house and they started serving wine. I was offended because, you know, my family has there's a history of alcoholism and it really bothered me uh, that we would be drinking and, 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 or having, you know, alcoholic beverages. And it, you know, and it just bothered me. So these are things we deal with. You know, another couple came and said, hey, listen, you know what, We went to we want my, my children went to somebody's house and they were showing a video or a movie, you know, things that we don't appreciate or we wouldn't approve of it at our home, and they allowed our children to see this. And so you go, how do you deal with all of these things? How do you handle these things? Um, you know, we have to be able to, or, or my children went to somebody's house and, and their, their son taught my son, you know, a bad word, and not only told him the word, but told him how to spell it for future reference. You know, and how do you deal with this? Well, here's how you deal with it. And and the response is very simple. That we go to that person in private and we rebuke them. See, if your brother sins, rebuke him. See, you go to that person and say, look, you know what? And you don't involve other people. You go to them with first hand knowledge and you say, listen, you know what, little Johnny came over to your house and he came back with a story about a movie that he watched and you know what, and it's our fault because we didn't talk about this with you, but we don't want our children to watch certain types of movie. And however that is, then you negotiate that and you realize that and you honor that and you respect that with one another and and that way you develop that relationship that you're on the same page, you're going in the same direction when it comes to training up your children in the way that they should go. You know, I came home, and my, my son came home, and he, he spelled out a, 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 a bad word. And he said that your son taught him, and, and we, need to, we need to confront that so together we can be on the same page of how to deal with these things. And say, oh, okay, you know what, I'm, you know, I, and what do you do about it? Well, he says, if, and if they repent, then forgive them. If they say, I'm sorry, I didn't know that those kind of movies your children weren't allowed to watch, and you know what, we respect that. And I'm sorry that we did that without even thinking about it. You know what? Sometimes we do things in life, we just don't think about it. We don't try to offend people. We're not trying to cause somebody to stumble. We're not throwing the bait in front of them and see if we can get them to drink because they think it's offensive to God to drink and we're trying to lure them into it. We just do it because that's what we do. And we've come to that conviction or conclusion on our own. We're not thinking about anything beyond that. So we have, to, we have to go to each other and say, you know what, that was offensive. That, that caused me to stumble. It caused me a problem. I, you know, you know, and they say, well, I'm sorry. And we won't let that happen again. And that's what repentance is, a change of behavior. But what's really important to recognize and understand is we go to these people individually, privately. We go to them, and, and we don't go to other people and share these things. If somebody has offended you, then you go to them, you don't go to someone else. Now, obviously in a church setting, I'll give you an example. I mean, we've got like things that we host and that we do. And, you know, if we're having suppers where people are getting together under the umbrella of Kindred Community Church and you're getting together to have these suppers and it's all a church function, you know, and if you guys break out the booze, I'm going to have a problem with that. You know, and we will, as as an elder board, have a problem with that because that's not something that we want to endorse or encourage as part of who we are in Christ. Now, if you have a separate and private dinner party, you know what, we're not here to tell you what to do in your private life. That's between you and the Lord as you get in the Word of God. But we rebuke one another with Scripture. All Scripture is profitable, inspired by God, profitable, for teaching for rebuke. It's not my opinion This is what the Word of God has to say. If you have an opinion, I have an opinion, and the Word of God isn't clear on those things, then we respect one another, but we may decide that I don't want my kids coming over to your house. If you don't have a problem with those types of movies, and that's what you're going to show, then maybe my kid isn't going to be a friend with your kid, or my grandson's not going to be a friend of yours, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of social time together because we're not on the same page. But you know what? It's not going to cause a division in the body of Christ. What causes a division is we go out and we try to generate support for our side. I don't have a problem with drinking. Do you have a problem with drinking? I don't have a problem. Well, let's, get, well, let's find as many people who don't have a problem with something and get them to support our argument. And that's not what this is all about at all. See, the command to forgive is, if that person says, hey, forgive me, I, I didn't mean anything by it, then guess what the Bible says? Forgive them. Let it stink and go. Life is too short. You know what really matters? It really matters when you let things go. You know, it's important to understand that repentance is necessary to refi- receive forgiveness. I had m- one of the most unbelievable conversations with the guy who's been in ministry for years that i had ever had in my life. And it was an issue that had come up, and the guy said basically, listen, you know what, you don't have to repent to be forgiven. You don't have to acknowledge wrongdoing. You don't have to confess your sin. You don't have to repent to be forgiven. And I was like, whoa, whoa that's new theology. Where's that? Because stop and think about this from a very practical way. You know what? God does not forgive you and I until we acknowledge our sin before God and repent and turn from it. Otherwise, everybody's forgiven because no one's repenting. It's like, come on, think about it. You have to acknowledge your wrongdoing in order to be forgiven. Now, it may mean that I can forgive you but if you don't acknowledge and repent from your behavior, you're not released from the behavior. I just don't hold a grudge or bitterness towards you. I just kind of go, whatever, that's between you and God, and God will deal with you. But the reality of it is, is you, gotta be, you have to repent in order to be forgiven. Otherwise, you encourage wrong behavior. A story that I heard about a lady who walks into her living room and her husband's sitting there watching TV. She brings a frying pan with her and smacks him upside of his head. And he's like, whoa, what was that all about? And she's there she's holding the note and said, look at this. I took your dry cleaning stuff down the dry cleaner. I pulled this out of you and, and there's, a, there's a name on it, Mary Lou. And he went, whoa, 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 wait a minute now. That, that was my, that was, I got a tip from work and I bet on that horse. You know, I bet, I bet on that horse. She goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I jumped to the conclusion. About two weeks go by and all of a sudden she walks in the room again with a bigger frying pan. This time it smacks him even harder. He said, what in the world is that all about? And she goes, your horse just called. <laughs> the point is simple. You know what? I mean, we have to acknowledge when we're wrong, and we have to turn from that behavior in order to be forgiven. You know, and the Bible says very clearly in this passage, it says, you know what? If they, if they wrong you seven times and they come and say, I'm so sorry, and they repent, then you know what? Then forgive them. In Matthew it says, forgive them 70 times 7. The reality of it is, is that you know, we live in a fallen world and our best intentions aren't good enough at times. But you know, we have to learn to forgive one another. And that brings harmony and peace in our families and within the body of Christ. Some of you are holding grudges against other people who have disappointed you or let you down. They've acknowledged it, but it's not good enough. And to you, I say that love doesn't take an account, into an account a wrong suffered. You got to forgive them, and you got to let it go. You got to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. None of us are perfect; we all fall short. And we need to learn when another person acknowledges their wrongdoing and they turn from sin to forgive them and restore them in the relationship that God would have us to have as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, from these first four verses, I learn much about things that matter. It does matter how we live our lives. Do your actions, does your language lead people to God or away from Him? When I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, we were bored. And we did a lot of things because we were bored, looking for stuff to do. And one of the things that we did was we would turn, we would would spin street signs. And, uh, oh, forgive me if, you know, maybe you were one of the people we used to sit back and laugh as we saw people drive up and go. And we would just turn them, and and it was so much fun. Just, you know, talk about, see, we didn't have Nintendo and stuff like that. You know, we had washer boxes, dryer boxes. We used to play in those. I mean, it's like... But so you'd turn the sign, and people would come to the sign. They'd look, and they'd go the direction they thought was the right way. They would go the wrong way. And we'd laugh, and it was like, that was so much fun. And then you'd see them come back again. They'd look again at that same sign. It was kind of like a candy camera thing. You know, I blame it on Alan Funn. But... um, But, you know, and I often thought, you know, how many people went the wrong way and what impact did that have on where they were heading and, you know, and what it did? And, you know, and that's, you know, and you look at that and go, well, that's funny compared to how many people are going the wrong direction because they're confused at our brand of Christianity. And, and, and to that, God says, whoa, there's nothing funny about that at all. You know, do you cause others to stumble or do you help them in their walk and with their choices by walking in a manner that's consistent with what the Bible calls uh, the pattern or the manner worthy of, of how we're called? You know, are you aware of the potential danger that you pose to others? Are you always on guard to the fact that, you know what, your life is an open book. It may be the first Bible that anybody reads before they ever read this one. What are you saying to people? about your love for God, about what you know to be right and what to be wrong, about putting others' needs before your own, of sacrificing your own individual convictions on behalf of those around you so that you don't cause them to stumble? Do you privately rebuke others who have caused you to stumble and not make a public scene over these things? Do you go to them or is the first thing you want to do is call somebody else and get somebody else involved? And I just say, hey, you know what? You've got to work it out yourself. If somebody has offended you, you go to them personally and you resolve it between you and them. And you know what? And when they say they're sorry, then you say you're forgiven and let's move on together in our walk with the Lord. Encouraging one another. Building each other up. Do you forgive and forget the offense once it's confessed instead of holding grudges? Don't hold on to that which God says we should let go. I thank God that he doesn't hold on to the sins that I've committed throughout my life. He is faithful and just as we confess our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, I beat myself up over things that God long ago has forgotten. I'm sure you do too, but we need to trust God and trust that he has forgiven us as his word says that he has. You know, the thought is that we need to, to, you know, and and, and none of this is easy. And as we wrap all this up, you're going to see that that's why there's this this cry out from the apostles in verse 5. Lord, increase our faith. This isn't easy stuff. It's not easy to go to somebody and privately rebuke them. It's not easy to forget what they've done to us. It's not easy to forgive them over and over and over again, even though they repent and they repent and they repent and they repent. There's nothing easy about being a Christian. There's nothing easy about always being on guard if somebody is watching everything that you do, everything that you say, you know, walking as we say, walking around on pins and needles because people are watching us. You know, you don't have to walk around on pins and needles. If you stay in the Word and you stay close to God, then your life will reflect what you believe and you don't have to try to live a Christian life, it will just flow out of who you are. You know, just stop doing all those things that are questionable before God and man, and you don't have to worry about what other people are going to think. We don't worry about what we're eating, what we're drinking, where we are, what we're doing that somebody may see us because we don't do anything that we think would be questionable behavior that would cause anybody else to stumble. You know what? I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. We have the liberty to do it, the freedom to do it, but it doesn't matter because it it is not profitable. It's just not profitable. So we don't do it. But they yelled out, Lord, increase our faith. And some of us may be here thinking the same thing. Lord, you know you know the people in my life that you're asking me to forgive? Hard. Really hard. Not easy. These people are a piece of work. You know, I don't know what clay and dust you use for them, but man, we're talking about there's some real serious defects in that clay. And it's like, you know, hard. But I want you to notice something here. Their request is increase our faith. And the Lord said, you know what? Since you have faith, and it's not if, and if you did, you could. It is since you do, you have faith like a mustard seed. You would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. He's saying, hey, you know what? You don't need more faith. You just need to let the faith that's in you do its mighty work. Just this little seed of a mustard seed grows into this huge, huge tree, this huge bush. He says, you don't need more faith. You just need to allow the faith that is in you to do its mighty work. And you know how we stifle the faith that's within us? We always make excuses. Okay, Lord, I know you say I should forgive, but... I know you should, that I shouldn't do things that are questionable... But you know what? That's their problem. If they got a problem with me drinking, if they got a problem with me gambling, if they got a problem with me smoking, if they got a problem with me doing this, that, and the other thing, you know what, Lord? That's not my problem. That's their problem. And you know what? That self centered, prideful, arrogant attitude reflects that it is your problem. Because you have no sympathy, you have no sensitivity, you have no compassion for what other people are going through. It's all about you. It is your problem. And we stifle the faith that is within us by making excuses for our disobedience. He said, man, if you just let the faith that's within you do its work, you could do mighty things. Forgiving others, piece of cake for a God who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it all ties into service. It says, But which one of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in the field, Come immediately, sit down and eat. Well, you know what, but will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? And the, and, and the idea behind this is this. Stop looking for attaboys from God for things that He has required us to do. We always want a slap on the back. We always want acknowledgement for things that we're doing. But you know what? Because He has done what He has done for us, we just respond to what He has done for us by serving Him with the gifts that He has given us. We don't need to have strokes from people, attaboys from people. It's nice to hear those things. But at the end of the day, the illustration that he's using is this. Look, isn't that your job as a servant to serve? If that's your job as a servant to serve, then serve. And how much more should you and I serve God who has given us the, His best and His Son so that as we just learned last time, we don't have to experience the, the eternity of, of hell and the lake of fire and the, and, the, and the torment that goes with being separated from God and the remembrance of what we could have had but we rejected. You know, we've got all of this life and through eternity to serve and praise God that we are His workmanship, His trophy that He has preserved from the very depths of hell that we could praise Him. So why are we looking for strokes and just doing things that God says that's what he requires us to do? You know, what are the things that matter in conclusion? It matters how we live. It matters the example that we set forth. It matters that when somebody repents and asks for forgiveness, we forgive them totally, blamelessly, and forever and not hold things against them. What matters? It matters that, you know what, that we serve God and use the gifts that he has given us, not expecting anything from him. He's God. We're not. He doesn't serve us. We serve him. And it's a privilege to do that. See, these are things that matter, and a whole bunch of other stuff just doesn't. Think about the challenge. Think about putting others first. Think about considering others more important than yourself. Think about the message that you're sending to your family, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to your teammates, to your classmates. When they look at your life, do they see Jesus or do they see a bunch of confusion and hypocrisy? You know, don't do as I do, just do as I say. God's people, we say to the world, do as we do, And then you will listen to what we have to say. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. God, we just pray for conviction of our own hearts that we would live lives that are more pleasing to you first and foremost and lives that are less confusing to a world that doesn't know you. God, may we consider others more important than ourselves. That's attitude of humility that was even in the Lord Jesus Christ who emptied himself and took on the appearance of the form of a bondservant so that he could in obedience go to the cross to die for the sins of the world, efficient for all but applicable only to those who would recognize their sinfulness, repent and turn to the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, help us as your people to live in a manner worthy of our calling. Help us as your people to forgive others who have caused us to stumble along the way. Help us as your people not to be the cause of stumbling in the lives of others. God, help us to get out of the way so that that seed of faith can do its mighty work in our life. Increase our passion for you. Increase our desire to serve you in a sacrificial way, not looking for strokes, but looking to be pleasing in your sight. And we just pray that whatever results occur because of anything that we do, that we will give you all the glory and the credit that, as John the Baptist prayed, Lord, that you would increase and that we will decrease. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.